Good evening. Good evening. We are uh, coming to the book of Acts. This is the uh, next great sweeping volume in the, all the history of redemption, of God's continuing work. God continues that work that He started. And we see the apostles preaching the gospel in this book and uh, establishing churches. And uh, we see that the believers are gathered in and uh, they're equipped and they are to fulfill this great commission that Christ gave them all under the power of God. Quite the human history, isn't it? And uh, that's the way it'll be till Christ returns. And uh, we see uh, this whole plan of redemption God is uh, doing. And, uh, of course, uh, throughout the history of the church, we're part of it, aren't we? Anyway, uh, in this section that's in this... uh, in Luke, or as Luke uh, addresses uh, Theophilus, telling the story um, about how God has a plan, it's continuing. He had promises in the Old Testament, and they're fulfilled. They're fulfilled in Christ. Christ then promises the coming of the Holy Spirit, and of course, we will see that in in Acts. The Holy Spirit enables the apostles to do what um, they need to do. That's the only way they're going to be able to do it. And uh, they have to fulfill that commission that they couldn't do it on their own. They need the very power of the Spirit. So when we come to verses 12 to 26, I'm going to try to finish the the chapter tonight, we uh, come to a situation regarding Judas, for the most part. And uh, I think it gives a little bit of closure on the life of Judas, uh, how what, what happened there but also uh, to show us that God is in total control here. Even though we have uh, an apostasy that is absolutely unthinkable that uh, Judas was a part of, it did not delay God's plan, didn't thwart God's plan. Matter of fact, it was all a progression of God's plan. He was uh, controlling all of this. Uh, it's all in God's purpose. It unfolds exactly the way that God designed it to be. And the very action of Judas to betray him, to deliver him over, to play a role in this horrible treatment that Christ had, it was all prophesied and uh, included in that plan. But it does not lessen the guilt that Judas would have. And uh, so goes the mystery of God and sovereign control and yet the responsibility of, of man. And I know in Mark, we're, we've been talking about Judas, like last week, and then here we are in Acts with Luke uh, giving the rest of the story on what happened after he had uh, done his treachery. So uh, God's redemption is absolutely on schedule in every moment, every time. That's an old-time phone. (laughs) That's a a sound that I miss. Don't don't hear that anymore. But um, God sovereignly determined this, didn't he? In Ephesians 2.20, it talks about the apostles being the foundation of the church. They're the very foundation the, the, as far as the apostles, the prophets, the writing uh, that, that they were given, everything that was laid down. Uh, of course, Christ being that, that uh, chief cornerstone of all that. So in preparing for the apostles to do what they're supposed to do, Jesus spent another 40 days kind of in and out uh, with them between His resurrection and the ascension. 
And uh, we know in verses 9 through 11, where we uh, left off last week, uh, that was the ascension. He had uh, taught them, prepared them, got them ready. And last week we looked at, he gave them the right message. Message being, of course, the gospel. Uh, he gave them the, what, what do we say, multiple uh, appearances. And uh, that just uh, anchors it in that much further, the right manifestation of himself. Um, also, the gift of the Holy Spirit is um, going to be there. And they also were not going to know when he was going to come back. That didn't matter. What did matter was to keep giving out the gospel to the rest of mankind all over the world. So, you know, um, they're going to be confronting sin. They're going to be calling people to deny themselves like Christ had uh, done and to become slaves the rest of their lives um, because of this crucified Jew who had uh, resurrected. It's kind of a hard sell going to uh, people that were um, Jewish people and telling them about this one. Um, They were preaching a gospel that uh, is very offensive. It's offensive to Jews, and uh, we know there's a stumbling block. Um, It's offensive to Gentiles, Romans. Uh, Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians. And that's the same message that we have today. And in some ways, our culture is kind of like back then. At one time, it was a little safer here. You know, there was a little bit of a culture of Christianity, if I can say that. I I don't know uh, how far I can go with that, but I know it is becoming more and more unpopular, I believe, in our time. And it was definitely unpopular then. So we can kind of identify with uh, some of the things that uh, they they had to deal with as uh, we go on in time, uh, even though there was a widespread cultural-type Christianity, maybe some watered down in a lot of cases, but people would accept the uh, Christianity a lot more than they, they would now. So we can kind of get an idea as they were completely aliens even though that was their home country that they started in, in Israel, and Jerusalem, uh, Samaria. But as uh, they went further out, uh, we see the gospel being preached to people who didn't have an idea. And uh, so, what a, what a way that uh, God had in plan for His disciples to do. They sure needed strength. They needed power, didn't they? And that's what they're getting ready for. But beforehand... There has to be something done before He comes. That's what we see in Acts 2. Why don't we pray? Father, as we appear into Your Word tonight and look at history, and it's not just a history book or a biography, but it's, it's about the very person of Christ focusing on His death, burial, resurrection, that message with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see how you've used your people to take that gospel out. And the church has not only survived, but uh, has done very well for 2,000 years. And um, we thank you as you laid that foundation of the new covenant. And uh, it's been brought forth, and we get to sit here today and read it and study and gloss over it and try to have it come alive before us 
that um, we would be able to live this gospel and also share it. And in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, we start at uh, verse 12. Jesus has ascended to heaven. There's the 40 days. And we know that there's going to be 10 more days. And of course, Pente, Pentecost, Pente means 50. Uh, that would be the 50 days. And uh, of course, I think most believe that Pentecost was, even though that was a uh, feast that the Jews had celebrated, we know that that's when the law was given. Um, Moses. And, of course, when you think about the Holy Spirit, who's given in his much fuller sense at this particular time period, um, it fulfills what the law couldn't do. And, of course, the the law doesn't give us power. It just exposes our sin, doesn't it? And uh, here comes the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter, our very strength, our very power. So, that was a fulfillment of, of a feast there. Christ being the Passover and... Um, of course, 50 days later, Pentecost. Uh, Jesus had told them not to begin their mission yet. Don't go anywhere. Stay right here. Don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit... Look, look back in verse 4. Gathering them together, He commanded them, commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised which you said you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they, they were told they were going to be witnesses. You've got to take this out. Verse 8, of course. Um, and But don't do it yet. Wait. They don't know how long they're going to wait, but they're going to wait. And this is obedience. This is exactly what they do. Now before, we had seen where they had gone up to Galilee and what did they do when they got to Galilee? They were fishing. <laughs> they did what they knew best. This time, they're waiting. And um, I think of, uh, look back in Luke. Right at the end of Luke. And who's writing Acts? Luke, right? One of the very last things that he says in part one, volume one, Luke 24 49, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now there's verse 49, right? Might as well read uh, 50. He led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands, blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. There's our ascension. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So, um, we'll notice that they probably went out and about. They weren't just in that upper room and didn't go out and do anything. They just stayed there for the ten days. Um, evidently, they definitely went to the temple. There's a good reason to believe that that upper room was very close to the temple, somewhere in that vicinity. And it could, and we'll talk about that later, but it could be that that upper room um, was also the place where they had their Passover. might have been the one like a, a week later after he died when Thomas was with them the next time. They were in that same place. Very possible. But uh, 
Look in John 16, verse 7. So we've, we've seen his instructions. I think he's made it very clear that uh, he has this promise. Of course, how many times does he make things clear when they have been following him and they still don't get it, right? Uh, and John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he has to leave. And the Holy Spirit then will come later. That was uh, just the the evening before uh, he was arrested. John 16. Um, Let's see, where where are they at? It says uh, in 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, if you lived in Jerusalem, if you lived around that area, you'd know what this would be about. Uh, Olivet, uh, Sabbath day journey away. But he's writing to Theophilus, and he's writing to some people uh, that would be reading this that would probably not be uh, familiar with this area. And if you haven't been there, uh, it helps when somebody says a little bit about what, what it is, and so he does. He gives some kind of geographical identification. And a, a Sabbath day um, journey would be as uh, kind of like, I think it's like a half mile away. They were not to walk any further than that, because that would be work. So it was to be within that realm. Well, if you go to the Mount of Olives, which is on the east, and you go up this incline, Jerusalem is like up 200 feet, and then this um, mount there uh, would be another 200 feet. So it would be up like about 400 feet and be looking down upon the city. You've probably seen a lot of pictures of um, Mount of Olives. Anybody here hadn't seen any pictures of Mount of Olives looking down upon the, the eastern wall? You can kind of envision that a little bit. Um, anyway, uh, gives a little bit of identification there. Beautiful vantage point. They say of a morning when the sun is just uh, eclipsing the um, that area, like it, it hits the eastern wall, and what a sight that is. And then it starts rising a little bit more and then kind of canvases the whole city. Beautiful, uh, they say. Uh, this morning I was uh, riding from uh, Highway 50. I was trying to get on there with Troop F. And the sun, you know, it's like an hour different than it was last week. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it, absolutely blinded me. I couldn't see there, you know, and the cars are coming like this, zoom, zoom. And it's like, how do I know how to get out of here? And it's safe. <laughs> well, you look real quick and all of a sudden it's like, like, like mm, but it's a, the sun is just as bright as it can be. And it definitely casted uh, kind of a neat look upon like where I was heading towards Walmart, you know, <laughs> and it was hitting on that. But it, it was still low. And so they say that's just a, a gorgeous time to, to look at that. Um, so anyway, he gives a little bit of a measurement there and, and the traveling and uh, they put restrictions on how far they could walk. Actually, it's not really stated like that. In Exodus, I think, uh, 16.29, they had in the camp there, Moses and the children of Israel, 
they were all probably within about, um, I think, 300 feet or so, maybe somewhere in that vicinity, when they would come to worship, it'd be within um, a half mile, somewhere in that realm. So they they just took that and then ran with it and made a law out of it, and you couldn't uh, walk any further than uh, the Sabbath day journey. Otherwise, it'd be work. Um, I always wondered, what did they do? What did the people do if they lived further than a half mile away and they wanted to go to the temple? I guess they had to come there and camp out, huh? Anyway. How would you know how, exactly how far it was? How would you measure something? Oh, yeah, they probably had that marked out everywhere. Seventeenth journey marker one hundred one. Yeah. One hundred one. Probably so. <laughs> Knowing those guys, yeah. Anyway, um, when they had entered the city, okay, so they're they're coming back from the Mount of Olives. They've they've gone that that distance, and so we know how far they they were, and how far they come there. They entered the city, went into Jerusalem, and he said, stay in Jerusalem, right? Don't stay at the Mount of Olives, stay in Jerusalem, right? Don't stay in Bethany. So they they go into Jerusalem. When they entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. So it looks like a place that they're hanging out for a while. They had been staying that uh, one week uh, at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, evidently, in Bethany, uh, or so we think so. Um, maybe it's some kind of a, a big rental room where a lot of people can gather, um, a lot of room, be comfortable. Um, and a lot of people say this was the place where they had had the Passover, perhaps. All right, um, could be the same upper chamber that they uh, they met for the the Passover, and uh, where they'd all gathered on that Resurrection Day. Uh, and Jesus actually showed up there as he went through a wall. <laughs> Somehow he just appeared before them, right? Uh, so anyway, uh, here it is. Pretty exciting things, I think, could have happened in this room if it's all the same place. And it would be that if this was a friend of them that owned that, or he definitely somebody knew Jesus, and we know that when they set that Passover up, if that was the same place, that um, that's where they stayed for quite some time. And a lot of people have been hanging around, uh, too. You've got a festival coming up, Pentecost. Some people travel for miles and miles and miles. Um, go to Mark fourteen, fifteen. This is where we're dealing with this I found Sunday, as a matter of fact. Uh, verse 14 says, uh, Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, prepare for us there. So there was a large upper room for that. Possible. So here they are in this place where they happen to be kind of staying. Not, they don't live there. But they're, they're staying there. They're going to stay there quite a bit. And you have Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew. So we have apostles. We have 
the 12 minus 1, so we have 11, right? And then he mentions James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot. Then he mentions, and Judas, but that's not the Judas that we all think of, Judas Iscariot. It's a, another, uh, the son of James. So, we have apostles. In verse 14, these all with one mind. Kind of like that. Paul uses that quite often. One mind. You know, the church is of one mind, one attitude. Keep this mind in you. One mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Okay, we know the apostles are there. But who are the women? Well, they don't. Mary is there, but they don't really identify him. But you would think they would be some of the women that were associated at the resurrection, uh, that had been at the crucifixion of Christ. Some of these were the same women that had been traveling along with Jesus and the apostles. It wasn't just Jesus and the twelve all the time. There were many other followers that uh, that were uh, called disciples. And uh, some of these women would have been around quite a bit. So you'd think of Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Clopas, uh, Mary and Martha and uh, Salome and all the women that were at that time of Jesus' death and all the ones who had uh, followed him. I don't think that would be very surprising at all, would it? And they're there waiting. They're waiting, praying, worshiping, fellowshipping, but they know that God has something in store for them. They know about this promise. Jesus' brothers, and of course, with our Catholic friends, they say He had no brothers. We, we say they're half-brothers, obviously why, but... Uh, they definitely were brothers and not just cousins. Or, hey, we're all brothers and sisters, right? Uh, they are specifically called uh, that, and they're, they're named. And Of course, he had sisters. Yeah, Barb. I have a question about that. In the notes down below here, it says his brothers were first to Jesus as half-brothers, mm-hmm. the sons of Mary and Joseph. But then there's a footnote note that says, in other wordings, it says brothers and sisters, and it's referring to the Greek word Adelphi. So it's brothers and sisters in Christ. So which is it? In in uh, you mean like an axe in here? Yeah, at the end of fourteen. Yeah. Well, I half brothers or is it what what. Here, okay, he talks about the apostles and he names them, right? Right. He does name um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and right after that, and with his brothers. So, he's not specific, he's not naming all 120 people. Of course, I mean, in that sense, yeah, they're, they're brothers, everybody's a brother or sister. But in this case, we know, um, for instance, that Jude is a half-brother of Jesus and also uh, James, who happens to be uh, playing a key role in Jerusalem there uh, in the very, very, very early days here 
which is another half-brother. Uh, it's interesting to see how they thought of Jesus earlier. They weren't believers until this time. Well, what, I, what I'm asking is, that's what the footnote, one of the, uh, the note at the bottom says, that where it says, and his brothers is referring to his half-brothers. But there's also a footnote for that same brothers that says it's could be referring to brothers and sisters in God's family, the church. So they're saying both, right? One or the other. So in that next verse, it has the word in the midst of the brethren. Yeah, but is, that's not the one that's footnoted. I know, but is that the same Greek word in both cases? I would have to, yeah, I have to look in my interlinear and... That's a good question. Yeah, and there, the bre- and the brethren qualified 120, so it was all of them. And women that were right. together. Right, exactly. I think what he's hitting at here, the point is, that, that footnote's kind of misleading. Yeah. Because I think it's directly trying to hit upon the fact that here you have Mary, you have now brothers who were very close, real brothers, and the apostles. Yeah, and then later, and of course the next verse, there you have all the brethren, all 120. Yeah. So that... Exactly. I'll have to check in my interlinear when I get home and see if it uses that same word. I guess it says, I, it's referring to in the footnote, it refers when there's other translations. I guess some of them read and marry the mother of Jesus and his brothers and sisters. Yeah, that's what mine is. That's what mine is saying. And if, if it's referring to it that way, then it's referring to his brothers and sisters in Christ. But in mine, it just reads the brothers, and the note at the bottom of brothers referring to Jesus and half brothers. Well, let's go to Mark. Mark 6, 3. And what we do there is we see that... Um, we'll see his brothers listed. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, right? And the brother of James and Joseph and Judas. Now, there we have James, Judas. Those are the ones that are going to write epistles. And Simon. Now, they're named. Are not his sisters here with us? Okay. Um, so, the the point is that he has a mother there and the brothers that are, you know, um, related to him in that sense. And that's a good passage to show one that would say that, well, he didn't have any, or, you know, to it's defeating the whole point to make him say that there's somebody else or just general. Um, I didn't mean to get you off track. I can, I can look that up when we get home. Yeah, I... Um, yeah, I don't have the word. I got a feeling it's probably a Delphoi there. There is another word that can be used that is specifically in it, and it means that rather than just like a general cousin or what have you. Um, in Jesus' ministry, he, he at one time come to Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths, turned to John 7. Now, there we know that that was at, at his, uh, during his ministry. He mentioned some there, they mentioned uh, the brothers and the sisters. And verse 3, 
Now the feast of the Jews, and, and the Jews are trying to kill him even this time. Feast of Booths was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea. And some people say, well, that, the brothers are disciples, right? Well, it couldn't be because he's not with the disciples. So that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. So, and it's like, these, these guys don't even believe in him. Why would they even be called brothers, right? Unless they are related. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Sounds like Satan, doesn't it? Remember the temptation? Hey, if you're going to do this, you know, show off. You know, give a show. For not even his brothers were believing in him. And to say that was a general brothers uh, doesn't make a bit of sense. That ones who don't believe in him, they're considered to be brothers. But anyway, um, we see that they didn't believe until this time after his resurrection. I think that's... Uh, Pretty fascinating to note in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is during the time after his resurrection. And we see the sequence in verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren. And there's your general word there at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Most of them are still alive. If you want to go check it out, you can check some of them to see if this really be for real. Most of them were still living when Corinthians was written uh, within a generation. Most of them still, some of them died. And then he says, then he appeared to James. Now, that's not James the Apostle, because he's already said he's appeared to the Apostles. But this is James, the one that we've seen already listed before. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, as Paul says. So there, James had a first-hand appearance. He appeared to the apostles, he appeared to 500, and personally appeared to James. So uh, no doubt there was a dramatic change in this brother's life personal appearance of Jesus. And that, that would be like the grace of Christ to do that, wouldn't it? And uh, James has this personal appearance. We'll see what happens to that. Um, the conversion of James probably could have convert, converted the rest of the brothers. James becomes the head of the Jerusalem church. He, he's even called Old Camel Knees. You guys heard of that before? He, he prayed so much. He was on his uh, knees praying that he developed calluses on the knees. as like a camel. So goes the story. But uh, James played an instrumental part in all that. A very predominant place Jerusalem was. And James, we know, was martyred uh, for his faith. And I believe... Um, we see a, a dramatic transformation in his life and uh, Jesus' brothers. And so they're, they're there. And they've seen the risen Christ. And by the way, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. And uh, that we know that um, that's really important. She uh, is like everybody else. She needs a Savior too, doesn't she? She said that in her Magnificat that she wrote. And uh, anyway, 
she had been around uh, Jesus and some of his uh, his ministry. Uh, what are they doing? Well, they're devoted to prayer, as we see in uh, back in in Acts. Uh, Verse uh, 14, continually devoting themselves to prayer. Quite a lot of hours they were spending together and worshiping and praying. And I don't think they're seeking the Holy Spirit like what a lot of people would be. Jesus already promised that. I mean, they want to be ready, but God's sovereign will is that the Holy Spirit's going to come. They were told to wait. And of course, to, to pray is to be in close communion with God. And they have to pray now. Before, they had Jesus right there with them. They talked with him. He talked with them. They had a communication. He now has just left. He's gone. Now, how do they get in touch with him? Well, back in John 14... Of course, he's taught them about prayer, and you can think of uh, what's called the model prayer or the Lord's prayer. But um, in in John 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In my authority. In whatever I would ask for. If we would ask what Jesus would be asking, then we know it's going to be in His will, right? In my name. Jesus' name, let me win the lottery. Yeah. As long as I said Jesus' name, right? Little little thing at the end there. Right. Exactly. And that's that's the idea. From now on, you guys are going to have to depend on me. I'm not going to be with you bodily. Holy Spirit is going to be with you and comfort you. You, but you know, you you pray. And so they waited. They fellowshiped. They praised. They prayed. They went to the temple. Right as it said in Luke. So that kind of introduces this section as they're getting ready. And Peter knows that there has to be something done. They only have 11. They're missing one. And you'll notice that Peter is already being different than he was before. They're getting it now. Scripture is now coming alive to them as before it didn't. They now are understanding that there had to be a resurrection. And in the Old Testament, Peter uses so much of the Old Testament to validify what he says. It shows he's validating what he uh, states. And even before his great sermon that he does in the next chapter, we see him here taking charge and quoting Scripture, quoting Psalms, like you'd never seen Peter before. You remember, this is the same Peter that Jesus says, hey, I have to go to the cross, I have to die, I have to suffer. No, 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 Lord, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. You're gonna, you can't die. <laughs> remember that? And what did Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. And once you know the Scripture that the suffering servant, this Messiah, must die, once you get a hold of that and you see what happened, 
then you, you start taking note. That's what he was trying to get across. How did we miss it? <laughs> Isaiah 53, right? You can think of that. You can think of Psalm 22 about how graphic David described what this crucifixion was about. Zechariah 12, as they pierced him. Their whole ignorance of the life and the ministry of Jesus came from, the, I guess, their inability to connect everything that was in the Old Testament. It's now, it's just like they've had seminary courses and they know exactly what this is. Whereas before, they forgot all about it. Yeah, Dwayne. Uh, I wish I could I think I know who the minister was. It was a local minister, but I, I can't remember that. This was 13, so I won't name it. Uh, but he went, he's not here anymore, but he, uh, he went to Harvard Divinity School. And uh, of all places. <laughs> Red flags go up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Unless it was back in the uh, uh, 1700s. <laughs> yeah. <No. laughs> and uh, anyway, that's where he went. And uh, he, he's, a, he's a, a godly man, and uh, uh, but he went to Harvard Divinity School. Well, when he was taking Hebrew, uh, he was the only Christian in the class. They arrested for Jews, and for some reason, uh, the professor each year would let them vote on one chapter that they wouldn't have to study, and they all agreed on Isaiah 53. Yeah, that's the one they said. That's the one they said. I'm almost positive. I have some trouble with my memory now. I'm almost positive. Yeah. I think I know who it was. That's interesting. He said the pulpit or said it directly to me. I wish I could remember for sure, but I think he told me directly. Yeah, they would uh, definitely have trouble with Isaiah yeah. 53, and they do. Yeah. They, they have to explain it away or right. don't, they don't touch that it. One clause that, they, that they can vote and not do one. Either. Yeah, that's right. kind of interesting that they would. Yeah, why would that be there? Well, Jesus had taught them 40 more days after all that, you know, and in and out, and Peter knows that Scripture has to be fulfilled. Wow, they not only know that the Old Testament prophesied Messiah now about Messiah's death and such and his resurrection, but even prophecies by David out of the Psalms. That's just amazing. They're going to draw from the Psalms. And I think of this passage we're dealing with. At that time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons, as they're together, and said, Brethren... The Scripture had to be fulfilled. That's, that's what he's going to address them with. They've been probably thinking and reasoning over the passages too after Jesus had been you know, getting out the scrolls and getting down on their hands and knees and <laughs> getting down and studying you know, and really checking that out. Scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. The Holy Spirit inspired David to write these things Concerning Judas. They start thinking about Judas. I mean, the, the whole closure thing on that had to be done. It's like, what happened? How did we miss that? Judas was, that was the, a guy that they wouldn't have thought at all to do that. But the whole time he'd been 
pilfering money out of the treasury. His heart never was right on that. He was there for the ride because they were going to build a political kingdom. And when he found out that that wasn't it, he said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And anyway, um, right. Well, um, go back to the Psalms then. And, and this is what he's going to use. You know, he, uh, as we'll see as we read down a little bit further in Acts, but we'll turn to Psalm 41.9. Because it said, oh, the, this, this was the deal about Judas. Imagine putting this all together. You've been thinking and you've been sharing with others, you know, and you're putting scriptures together and you're going... Oh, this was foretold. Here we go. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, remember at the Passover, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and you set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the God the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. David wrote that, but you see that dealing with the close friend. He ate my bread. There was they were, there was closeness there. There was a uh, an intimacy in in that sense. You wouldn't have thought this kind of guy would have been that way, but uh, he was. Uh, Psalm fifty five, verse twelve. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is for you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol. That's uh, that's interesting, though. That twelve through fourteen, it talks about it's, it wasn't an enemy, but it was one who was very close, a very close friend, uh, intimate friendship. He, you know, and then, of course they eat the bread together. One who s- takes this bread from me and he puts it in the sop, eats that. That. Uh, that's a hard deal to uh, to go through when uh, a friend, somebody close, uh, turns their back on you, and turns you in. I don't know why I ever realized my blind spot in that. Uh, I guess I just always kind of assumed because Jesus knew what Jesus was going to do that somehow he withheld some of himself from him. But it doesn't say it at all. It's just my friend. Yeah. Close fellowship together. Then he, of course, when Judas comes up to him, too, he says, Friend, why are you here? He really meant it. I'm not sure why I never saw that before. That's right. And all full well knowing that he was the one mm-hmm. that's going to do that. Yeah. Um, God didn't make Judas what he was to be that to do what he did, but in another sense, he was controlling and his plan. Judas made Judas what he was, right? I mean, Judas chose that, but yet God planned Judas into this whole redemptive scheme. Uh, he was chosen by God. He was chosen by Christ to be an apostle, wasn't he? 
All apostles were chosen by him. Um, and um, he was chosen by God and, and was not apart from his own will. He wasn't made to betray Christ in, in some senses, but at the same time, he was allowed to be an apostle to, to play this role. And that, that role was crucial. So it was in the plan. It's a sovereign plan of God. It was accomplished um, through Christ, but he was ordained to be this player, to do what he did. Just like Annas was, uh, Caiaphas, um, how about some of the other people? Pilate, Herod. Look at all those the leaders that were all playing this part. They all had it in there. And Judas did exactly what the Old Testament said of him, which is it's just astounding. I think it's amazing. He's guilty for himself, making his own choice to do what he did, but yet God has his purpose fulfilled in this. It's amazing how sinners think that by not coming to God, they somehow operate in their own freedom. And yet, when you see a sovereign God, no one really operates in their own freedom anyway. Um, Everybody's freedoms are within the sovereign power. God can let them do what they want, but He still can restrain or just let it go. He is one that controls it all. So what Judas did... The Old Testament uh, vindicates it. So he chose to do that, but yet God has his plan. It's, um, he gave them options, knowing what options they would go for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of like the um, evangelism and the sovereignty of God. You know, we can say, well, God's going to do whatever he's going to do anyway, right? But yet, People are held responsible for their their actions, but God will have a divine appointment ultimately. And so, Judas was given an important office, the an apostle. Think of it, the office of an apostle. But while he was an apostle, he never was saved. Never was. And uh, he's like that man in Matthew. Uh, was it Matthew seven? Lord, Lord, I did uh, I did this and I did that. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. I never had that real intimate relationship. Anyway, we go back to Acts. And it says, for he was counted among us. He was part of the apostles, the twelve. He received his share in this ministry. What a blessing he had in the sense that he saw and was a part of this ministry. He saw the things that Jesus did and said. Can you imagine how dramatic that must have been? He was all blessed in, in all that. And he said, Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakladamah, the field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. And I think you get Psalm 69.25 there, you get Psalm 109.8, 
Peter's just taking this from what he knew it was truth. And so, it, it, you know, he bought the field even though he really didn't buy it himself, but it was, it was he, he had thrown the money back to them. And they said, whoa, that's blood money. So they go out and then they buy this field, right? Quite remarkable. Uh, so, of course, he did it through them. You know, this man acquired a field, this Judas, and that field would be used to bury strangers that were that were bought with blood money. So he went to that place and tried to hang himself, evidently. That's what he did. And maybe the knot didn't hold or the rope broke, the branch broke and he fell and he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Now, some people say, well, see, there's a Bible saying he hanged himself, which he did. And others will say, yeah, but it shows here that, look at this, it, it was because that he fell headlong and he burst open in the middle. His intestines gushed out. Well, it was both, wasn't it? There's no problem with that. The people will try to look for anything to show, see, the Bible's in discrepancy. Well, that would only make sense. He he, he could possibly have he just failed in his uh, lynching there of himself. Yeah, there's that uh, the explosion. Well, I didn't say. Yeah, but that's that's what I've heard in some of the commentary. I guess that's the intestines gushing out, yeah, burst like open in the middle. Yeah, that would be a quite a scene to see. What's that, Audrey? (laughs) Miserable. Yeah, tragic end, isn't it? Um, Anyway, very tragic end, and it had been prophesied. And of course, your your Psalm sixty nine twenty five. That's that's another one there. That's just kind of what we read there. That. Peter is quoting. How's it read in here? Oh, it's uh, may their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents. Uh, sure. I read the wrong one. I'm in the wrong chapter. I can't find it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Anyway, now it's time to uh, put somebody as in that twelfth apostle. And from one twenty one to twenty six, he starts giving okay, here's the requirements. And so they're they're searching for this. He's so he, he starts with scripture. Okay, here's here's the deal, here's what happened. This was all prophesied that it was going to happen. This was a man destined to do what he did. Uh, you know, a, a son of perdition. We have to replace him. Therefore, it is necessary that of all the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, starting with the baptism of John the Baptist until the day that he was taken up from us. It's going to have to be somebody that had been along in that in that whole time period. 
So that's going to take a lot of people out right there, right? You know, that from maybe they had been for two years, but maybe not going all the way back. And so there has to be eyewitness of these that accompanied us just like we had, that we had been from the very start of his ministry. Jesus went out in, in amongst us. It's got to be um, that person to be that 12th. And so there's 120 there. And Why do they have to have 12? I never understood. Well, Jesus had started with 12. Okay. One is no longer there. And uh, and I think, of course, I think God is orchestrating this too through Peter to to get that twelve. Some people say, well, Peter made a mistake here, and he sure, really shouldn't have done that. But uh, I I don't think that at all. I think that this is instrumental because as soon as this happens, um, then then the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, is going to be in, in in chapter two. There, I think it's it's. Uh, it's, there's requirements, and that's one of them. They have to, to go all the way back to the, the ministry that Jesus started. Second requirement is that they have to see the resurrected Lord. So that's that's a major deal. That's why we don't have apostles today. Matter of fact, Ephesians 2:20 says it's built upon the foundation of the uh, the apostles built that uh, the Word of God. Um, the resurrected Lord is the one who. Um, they had to have experienced, been with. And the third requirement is that they be chosen by God. Of course, all the other apostles were chosen by God, chosen by Christ, right? Uh, personally. And so he's, he's operating in with, uh, with Peter and the rest of the apostles here and, and doing that. So they, uh, they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen. So there again, there's, there's the chosen. Which one have you chosen? Boil it down to two guys. To occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Now I know people are going to say, Lots? What are they doing with lots? What are they doing now? Won't they just go by the Holy Spirit? Well, Holy Spirit's going to come. <laughs> In the meantime, we have a transition here from the Old Testament, and while even in Jesus' ministry there was a transition. So they're still using some things that were done out of the Old Testament, and uh, they use a familiar Old Testament pattern. They, they draw lots. Maybe it's like a stick. You know, you've heard of the. There's a long stick and a short stick. Maybe it's something like that. But they they drew out, and the lot fell to Matthias. Um, but it's a decision that really comes from the Lord. And uh, we know in the Old Testament time period, in that particular economy, uh, we know that uh, lots were done to secure the fact. Okay, that that verifies how God is talking with us here. And I think we can go to Proverbs 16.33. See a little bit of what uh, dealt with there. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That would be the people who are trusting in the Lord, and as they would do that, it's uh, 
just verifies that uh, God is telling them this. Now, what about Matthias? This uh, this man is uh, definitely a godly man. He's been in this, following this ministry all along, and he's seen the resurrected Lord and the appearances that he uh, experienced uh, during these these particular last days that Jesus had been with him. Historically, we know he, uh, at least it's written down, that he preached in Judea. Uh, He was an apostle. He was a preacher, a gospel preacher. Uh, Story goes that he preached in Colchis, which goes all the way up to Georgia. And that's the Georgia that's around Russia. (laughs) Not in Atlanta. It's around the Black Sea area. Isn't that interesting? The Republic of Georgia. At this time, uh, Colchis. And because he preached the gospel there, guess what happened to him? He was stoned to death. He was martyred like the other apostles were, for he preached the gospel. Just kind of like what theirs were. What's that? These are, well, uh, a lot of it's uh, historical aspects. Of course, you get tradition mixed in. Um, and and if it's not scripture, you know we can't say a hundred percent. But a lot of the history that's recorded back in the first century, or some information we get on what happened to the apostles, pretty accurate. You'd like to know. You'd like to see it right in scripture, and then say absolutely, I can tell you this is for sure. You know. No, no, you don't see him in, in scripture from there on out. And that's why some people would say, well, see, um, he was never intended to be. Uh, the twelfth apostle Peter didn't really need to do that. Well, the thing is, a lot of the other apostles you don't see mentioned in there either. They're only mentioned in the Gospels, and that's it. Might be mentioned once, twice, and never hear about them again. But they're still there. They all made an impact, um, and so I, I don't think that that would be definitely a, the a qualifying aspect behind that. Uh, matter of fact, there is a marker. And this helps too, Barb. There's a marker near the ruins of a Roman fortress that is up in that area there that would have been. And it's believed to be his gravesite. Of course, you can go into Jerusalem and we don't even know for sure where Jesus' gravesite is at. We know that he was buried in a tomb. There are good reasons to believe why it might be at this particular case, but they have other places too where... Some say, well, here's the traditional and here's another thought. But here's where the cross might have been. And of course, they'll have a church for each one of those kind of Here's where Jesus was born. And, you know, the Catholic Church will have their churches over them. But um, a lot of times, uh, I, I think through tradition, with, with history, we can say, well, that's probably very, very logical, very possible that that could have been. Same thing as the upper room. You know, we put things together. and But, um, so now, as we have gotten to the uh, end of chapter 1, as he is added to the 11 apostles, we have everything we need. Holy Spirit's going to come. And um, now, we see, you know, knowing that, let's say that Matthias is martyred, Judas had a suicide. What a vast difference. Right? Judas is in hell, and that's his place. 
and Matthias is in heaven. So the ranks are filled. We're ready for the big event. Here we go. Till next week. <laughs> we will wait. <laughs> cliffhanger. Literally, there was a cliffhanger in that chapter. <laughs> That's a good question. Hey, there we go. Technically, ours was in reference more to Colossians, but it's not like we ignored Acts either. <laughs> Fifth uh, Jesus also called mm-hmm. us the disciples. Oh, almost. Almost. Is it wrong to think that maybe it has something to do with God's, you know, numbers that He uses in redemptive history? Is there any kind of tie-in like with the number twelve? Well, in, in Revelation, you have the the, the twelve. Um, uh, the, the, the foundations. You have twelve. You know, I think there's a sense of uh, completion in that. Um, twelve tribes. Twelve tribes. Yeah, yeah. Twelve elders. Twenty. Exactly. Oh. Yeah. So God uses that that number quite frequently. So yeah, it's. Yeah. But it often seems to me, though, that God chose Paul to be the twelfth. One untimely born. Yeah, he was one, and of course he saw the resurrected Lord. The only problem is, is that he wasn't there from the beginning. Even though he is declared to be an apostle, and he's definitely one. Uh, some refer to him as right, right. He's like the thirteenth. Right. Well, I doubt if the Holy Spirit messed up. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) When you think of like when I think of Revelation, who are the twelve for the be? Is Paul going to be among those twelve? I guess not. Right? It'll be Matthias, not Paul. I I doubt if Paul will lose out on anything. (laughs) 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 Uh, Oh, this is just a humorous side thing. Uh, Rabbi Zacharias, I think he was talking about the church, the Nativity. In Bethlehem, and there's five different groups that use the church: the Roman Catholics, the Greek Orthodox, the Coptics, uh, whatever the other two are, the Arameans, and somebody else. And uh, Greek Orthodox, I say Greek Orthodox. Anyway, uh, uh, <laughs> they can't get along to the point that uh, a Muslim has a key. <laughs> and he, he was talking with the Greek Orthodox guy, and he said. You mean you boys can't get along and <laughs> you'll keep the church open or something like that? I just thought that was funny. That's good. Let's pray. Hey, they, they pray. That's the thing to do. The church does, right? Eldon, would you mind closing us there in prayer? Father, we thank you for this record we have of what happened in the early church and how you were in control and led them and guide them, and Lord, that you're getting ready to empower them. We thank you for all your blessings that we can become a part of and participate in because of this. 
we just pray that you would remind us continually of how the church got started and that it was your plan and that you empowered it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.